0: For detectives and prosecutors, there are some crimes that they just can't shake. The murder of 18-year-old Mandy Stavik was one of those. In 1989, in a little town 20 miles from the border where Washington State meets Canada, Mandy was raped and left for dead in the Nooksack River. For the next 28 years, her case went unsolved until three women, who also couldn't stop thinking about it, stepped up to help the police catch her killer. I'm Amy, and this is the True Crime Recaps podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Chris. Every Wednesday, Amy and I come together to bring you twice the crime in half the time with not one, but two recaps, plus some candid conversation in between. For recap number two, I'm going to tell you about Lisa Ziegert, a popular teacher from Agawam, Massachusetts. She was working a shift as a cashier at a gift shop in a busy strip mall when she mysteriously vanished in April 1992. Her body was found four days later on a hidden back road only people local to the area knew about. Her case went cold until a breakthrough in DNA technology helped lead police to her killer 25 years later, a man who'd confessed he'd been fascinated by abduction and bondage since he was a kid. But first... Here's Amy with the story of Mandy Stavick.
0: The Stavicks are no strangers to tragedy. When she was four, Mandy's oldest brother, Brent, was mysteriously murdered on a bow hunting trip in the mountains surrounding the family home near Anchorage, Alaska. The 17-year-old was shot more than 20 times in the head and chest. No one knew why. His killer has never been caught. When Mandy was in seventh grade, the Stavics moved to another small town, Clipper, Washington, a tiny farming community 80 miles north of Seattle so mandy quickly became a much loved part of the tight-knit community in high school she made honor roll in the school band she played flute saxophone and clarinet and in sports she played varsity softball and basketball and ran cross country and track and when she started college three hours away at central washington university the sky was the limit her goal was to be a commercial airline pilot At first, and then she realized she'd rather look out a window than at a control panel, so she started thinking about other options, just like most college freshmen, and that was in 1989. In November, she took her new roommate home with her for Thanksgiving break. On Friday morning, the day after Thanksgiving, the two girls took a walk along Mandy's typical running route. It was a five-mile trip Mandy and her mother had plotted it out when she was in high school. It took them along the isolated road she lived on, going toward the Nooksack River. Now, later that afternoon, around 2 p.m., Mandy decided to go back out and run it. So typically, her mother would bike alongside of her while Mandy ran, but there were Thanksgiving guests at the house that day, you know, so she took the family's German shepherd with her instead. In her bright green sweats and blue running shoes, Mandy was hard to miss. Her 13-year-old brother saw her run past his friend's house where he was playing pool. And a guy she went to high school with also noticed her running when he stopped off to visit another classmate of theirs, a neighbor named Tom Bass. So here he is in court remembering that day. The dog was shaking and nervous. She wouldn't leave the porch. It had been hours since Mandy left for her run. Obviously, something was wrong. Hundreds of people from Clipper and the nearby town of Acme turned out to help search for her. Two days later, they found what they thought was her green sweats in a wooded area. And then around noon on November 27th, 1989, a volunteer firefighter came across her naked body floating gently in the Nooksack River, less than four miles from her house. She was only wearing her running shoes and socks. This is the former chief civil deputy in court. He's describing the scene before they took her out of the water. That officer had recently taken DNA training at FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. At that time, DNA was a relatively new technique, and it was important to him to recover Mandy's body without sacrificing any potential evidence, and it paid off. Semen was found on her body, leading them to believe she'd been raped. She was covered with scratches as if she'd been running through the thick bushes in the area and a bruise was found on the back of her head. Her cause of death was drowning. With the evidence they had, the police came up with a theory about what they thought might've happened. They thought Mandy was probably forced into a car while she was jogging. That same person must've kicked or hit her German Shepherd in order to take her. Then she was raped either before or after she tried to run. She cut herself on branches and thorns, but she couldn't escape. Her attacker hit her on the back of the head to knock her out. Then he dumped her body in the river and left her to drown. But who would do that? In the little town of Clipper, Washington, where everyone knew everybody, that question became even more ominous. 30 men gave saliva samples, including Mandy's boyfriend and a drifter known in the area, but none of them were a match to the DNA found on her body. So, which one of her friends and neighbors raped and murdered Mandy? For 24 years, there was no answer. And then, in June of 2013, two local moms by the names of Heather and Lee started chatting while their kids were playing at a water park. They had both gone to Mandy's high school, around the same time as she did, and as always, like even decades later, the conversation turned to Mandy's murder. That's when Heather said she thought she knew who did it. Surprised, Marilee said she thought the same thing. And they both, get this, they both had the same person in mind, Timothy Bass. So does that name sound familiar? Yeah, he's the older brother of Tom Bass. You heard Mandy's friend mention that name earlier on the witness stand. Well, he was visiting Tom when he happened to notice Mandy jogging on November 24th, 1989. Back then, the Bass family lived near the Stavik house and Mandy ran past their place all the time. So in an interview with 48 Hours, Heather and Merrilee explained what made them suspect Timothy. So he was friends with Merrilee's husband and a couple of years after Mandy's murder, he shows up at their doorstep. Her husband wasn't home, but she let him in anyway because Tim said he had to use the phone. Well, that turned out to be a total lie. He walks into her bedroom and tells her, hey, I used to drive by your house and I've always been in love with you. He said he wanted to make love to her. Just so disgusting. I'm like, on so many different, that word, it's disgusting. She told him she'd call the police if he didn't leave. And fortunately he did. Heather came up against Tim's predatory behavior a couple of months before Mandy was murdered. The two of them were catching a ride back from a softball game with a mutual guy friend, and Heather was sitting in the front between the driver and Tim when he started coming onto her. She was 15. He was 21. He told her her eyes were beautiful while he rubbed a pin against her legs. God, this guy... She was horrified, but since there was another guy there, she knew she wouldn't have to be alone with him. So before this conversation at the water park, neither Heather or Marilee had gone to the police with their suspicions, but that all changed after that conversation. So with this new information about Tim's predatory behavior, the police started looking at him as a possible suspect. All they needed was his DNA. They didn't check him or his brother or his father out at the time of the murders because... Nobody thought that anybody in that family would have been capable of something like this. So, this goes to show. But he refused to give up his DNA. He wouldn't even admit to knowing Mandy at first. It was such a bizarre, blatant lie that they immediately started to think they'd found their guy. But that wasn't enough to get them the search warrant they needed to take his DNA. Six weeks after her murder, Tim married a woman he knew from high school, and they moved 30 minutes away, closer to Bellingham, Washington. By 2013, he was working as a delivery driver for Fran's Bakery. Police reached out to them for their permission to try and get DNA off something of his from work, but without a warrant or a subpoena, they refused to help. But the police didn't give up. In 2015, they questioned Tim again. Their attention was starting to make him nervous. He asked his younger brother, Tom, for help, and he had a wild story for him. He claimed the cops liked him as a suspect because he and Mandy had been having a consensual sexual relationship when she was killed. So he asked his brother, Tom, to tell them that he was, Tom, was also having sex with her to try and make it look like she was sleeping around. He didn't do it. Tim was about four years older than his brother and Mandy. He'd already graduated from their high school, but he was a fixture at Mandy's games. He was quiet, a loner. He came off like an oddball, according to an interview a friend of Mandy's gave 2020. And by all accounts, he didn't really know her at all. And there was no way she would have ever slept with him. Tim's criminal record was clean, except for a restraining order his wife filed against him in 2010. She claimed that he was violent and controlling and had threatened her and their kids. Years later, she testified that he loved watching crime shows and would often say that if he ever committed a murder, he was too smart to get caught. But that doesn't make us murderers, because we are too smart to get caught. But he wasn't quite smart enough, as it turned out. In 2017, detectives went back to Fran's bakery, but this time his manager, Kim, was ready for them. She was about the same age as Mandy, and she grew up in Acme, not far outside of Clipper, Washington, so she was very aware of the circumstances around the murder. The detectives hadn't given her any specifics when they first approached her in 2013, but over the years, she put two and two together. So when they came back in 2017, she was ready to help the first thing they learned was that Tim always wore gloves during his shift, and he kept his delivery truck squeaky clean, going so far as to throw away his trash at home. It wouldn't be as easy as they hoped to get a sample of his DNA. But Kim was a mother herself, and she couldn't bear the thought of Mandy's mother never getting justice for her daughter. So she took it on herself to get the detectives what they needed. Now, it took A few months, but she finally got it. And here she is explaining in court just how she took him down. Tim was arrested on December 12th, 2017. And that was Mandy's mother's birthday. So talk about an amazing present, huh? And for the next two years, he sat in jail and dreamed up ways to get out of it. He asked his now ex-wife to say that she was with him at the time Mandy was murdered. And during a jailhouse visit, He held up a note to the glass, you know, asking his mother to say they were Christmas shopping. Then he tried to get her to say his dad did it. The poor guy had long since passed away. When Mandy was murdered in 1989, the prosecutor was 44. By the time the trial started in May 2019, he had retired. But because this case was so personal to him and everyone else who worked on it and lived through it, he wanted to prosecute Tim himself. At 73 years old, he came out of retirement to lead the prosecution. He refused to be paid. He just wanted to be the one to send Tim to prison. And on May 24th, 2019, he got his wish. A jury found Tim guilty of first-degree murder, rape, and kidnapping. But before he went to prison, Tim had this to say for himself. Today, Tim is serving out his 27-year sentence for Mandy Stavick's murder in a Washington state prison. And unlike the murder of her oldest son, her mother can finally enjoy a little closure and hopefully some measure of peace now that her daughter's killer is behind bars. And that's your recap. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. Now, on with the next recap right after this. Here's what kills me about that story is... And tell me what you think, but that's <laughs> I, I will. I, I'm like, I just I can't wrap my head around like how can a family have so much tragedy? I mean, it's just. Oh, so
1: are you talking sad. about when she? Wait, how old was she when her brother, her 17 year old brother, got shot?
0: Mm-hmm. She was like 20 like
1: times apparently young.
0: She was four. She, I, I want to say I want to say four. Like it was. Isn't that what? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what young. I remember. Yeah. And then a year before she was murdered. Her stepbrother, because her parents were divorced and her father remarried, and he still lived in Alaska while this was happening, and so her 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 father's new wife's son, I believe, wasn't a shared son. I was like her stepson, uh-huh. her stepbrother. Anyway, he also died. Yeah, but in a tragic boating accident. It wasn't like a murder necessarily, but I mean,
1: but he died in an a- he. I mean. Yeah, he died. He, in he died accident.
0: tragically. Yeah. yeah, and young. He was like twenty. I mean, it's just.
1: Well, that's what, what what stuck out to me was that the that that the brother died. He was shot twenty times. I
0: mean, what that is that?
1: Like that's excessive for any situation. I mean, how did that happen? I am very curious. I would be very curious to know what.
0: I went know on there. I yeah. tried to find information on that because I was also very curious about what was going on there. Yeah. And there's literally like hardly any information. I mean, it happened before the internet. And so before that, yeah, everything right. is like a black hole, apparently. Yeah. But you could really, I could really just find like some. And it was, yeah, he was like hunting. He was just kind of like, cause that's what you do around there.
1: Sure. Common sure. Yeah. activity.
0: Yeah. And yeah, you shot. All these times, and no one has ever been caught. They have no idea why. They just
1: don't know it just went cold, and that was it.
0: Yeah, it was terrible. Wow. But wow. I mean, at least Mandy, and it was unbelievable. Sometimes things just really make you believe in a higher power. You know what I mean? Because if those two women oh, yeah. at the park yeah, hadn't right. been talking, right, they wouldn't have like shared yeah. their same experience with that guy Tim. To show that he has a history of this predatory behavior. It's just a matter
1: of time, you know. People go through their lives and they have these theories they keep to themselves. You know, like, well, I kind of think that this guy, because of this experience I had, where he stopped by my house and told me he loved me and wanted to, you know, sleep with me right there. You know, when my husband was gone. You know, and and then Heather had her other story, Mm -hmm. you know, about how he was before the whole thing in the in the in the truck and everything like that. And you know, just kind of keeping that to yourself all those years, and just by. Just mm-hmm. you know, a crazy you know, years later, a crazy happenstance moment where they're sitting next to each other and it, you know, comes up and mm-hmm. like you know, you know, like just between you and me, you know what I kind of think? And, oh my god, I think the same thing, you mm-hmm. know. And there it goes. It's amazing. Totally, things uh, catch up. Yeah. yeah,
0: I have some people from my high school that I believe are going to be in the news at some point, and so I'm <laughs> keeping those in yeah. close. And so s- when that happens, I'm going to be like, uh-huh. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah, that's, that's,
1: that is an amazing, uh, uh, set of circumstances that, that led to that. You know, the conversation coming out about this person, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, And thank God for that woman at his work. but...
1: But there's, but there's other circumstantial things that are at play here, unfortunately. The other darker side of circumstance is that, you know, they're home for Thanksgiving and usually the mom rides on the bicycle. Next to her while she's running, I know. I say, "Oh well, we have you know this particular time and and that guy, you know the 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 the, Timothy Tim, Mm -hmm. right? You know the murderer. He maybe he wouldn't have been home either, you know, if it hadn't been Thanksgiving, you know, because he was a couple years older. Yeah, he seemed
0: like." I think they still living. Maybe around. he was just living. Yeah, around. I think he was like.
1: I never mind that part of the circumstance. Not but, off but, on his
0: own But journey. But as
1: far as that, the, the whole thing about, you know, I have to, I'm going to stay after and look after the guests and, and you're, you know, go on the run, bring the dog instead. You know, it's, man, it's really unfortunate. You know, that, that circumstantial thing worked against fate, yeah. you know.
0: I know. It's crazy.
1: My next recap is about Lisa Ziegert. And. It's a it's similar to your story in that she was murdered and it was a, a long time until they were able to track down uh, uh, I mean, it wasn't the same kind of circumstantial thing where people were talking about this person they thought it was, but he was always a suspect. They had this big pool of suspects over 25 years. Mm -hmm. And over time through DNA testing and things like that, you know, it got, got scaled down to a few people and he was always in that pot of possibilities. And, uh, and that's what, that's, that's how that happened. That's how they caught him.
0: How do they Um, sleep? Like, how do you go about your life for 30, 20 some years, knowing that you freaking murdered somebody.
1: Well, as you may, as you'll find out, uh, it sounds like he, it was on his mind a lot over the the two and a half decades that he was on the run, basically.
0: I hope he suffered. Can I say that? (laughs)
1: Uh, Um, Okay. Lisa Ziegert thought she was being watched. It unnerved her. On weeknights, she worked a part-time job from five to nine behind the cash register at Brittany's Card and Gift Shop in Agawam, Massachusetts, a popular gift shop in a busy strip mall. But in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, she invited friends and family to stop in and say hello whenever they could. She didn't want to be alone. Around 5.30 on April 15, 1992, her sister came by to say hi. They chatted about Lisa's real job as a teacher's aide, and she left a half hour later. Nothing seemed to be amiss. The next morning, Lisa was supposed to be in her classroom, but she never showed up. Her car, keys, and coat were left in the back room at the gift shop. When her co-worker showed up the next morning at 8.45 to open up, the door was unlocked and all the lights were on, as if Lisa had never left. But she was nowhere to be seen. At first glance, everything in the little store looked just as it should. The money was still in the cash register, and there were no signs of struggle. The blood splatters across the crushed boxes in the back and the scuff marks on the door going out to the alley wouldn't be found until later. The last transaction on the cash register was at 8.20 p.m. the night before. A customer who came in just before 9 p.m. said later, no one was up front. She heard a noise from the back but didn't check it out. Another possible witness told police she noticed a car when she drove by around 9.15 p.m. She thought a man and a woman might be having a struggle in the backseat. Four days later, on Easter Sunday, a man walking his dog came across the body of 24-year-old Lisa. She had been left in a heavily wooded area near an almost hidden service road off Route 75, just three miles from the gift shop. Deep defensive wounds on her hands and arms said she tried to fight off the brutal attack. Her denim skirt was ripped in half. She'd been raped and stabbed repeatedly. She died from a stab wound to the neck. For the people who loved her, the next few days were a nightmare of accusations. The theory was that her murderer knew her and knew the area. Attention focused on her boyfriend, Blair, and one of his roommates, a mutual friend of Lisa and her family, a guy named Ed. His dad owned a popular restaurant in the same strip mall as the gift shop where Lisa worked, and was a former Agawam detective. The rumor was that Ed killed Lisa out of jealousy over her relationship with Blair, and his father's former ties to the police department were keeping him out of jail. There was nothing to back it up. His DNA was not a match to the evidence found on Lisa's body, and he had a solid alibi. He was working in his family's restaurant that night in full view of dozens of customers, but... It didn't matter. For years, Ed was the prime suspect in the eyes of Agawam, and without an official suspect, police would not completely or publicly clear his name. 10 years passed with no developments in the case. Over the years, law enforcement fielded thousands of tips, many of them from wives and girlfriends trying to turn in their partners. In 1993, one of those tipsters named her ex-husband Gary Shara, a man who lived in West Springfield, Massachusetts, only 11 minutes away from Agawam. She suspected he was somehow involved. She didn't know anything for sure, but what made the hair on the back of her neck stand up was the way he acted every time information about the investigation came up on the news. He came racing into the room to listen. In her words, he was obsessed with the details of the murder and its aftermath. The same day his wife called in with his name, Gary himself called to ask if he was a suspect. He said he wanted to clear his name and offered to come down to the station the very next day. But before he could, police got yet another call. This one from his divorce attorney saying her client would not be coming down to the station for questioning. And without anything else to go on, Gary Shara's name went on the list of possibles, people who had refused to submit a DNA sample, and he was basically forgotten for almost 10 years. On April 15, 1992, when Lisa was kidnapped and murdered, Gary was working as a server in a popular restaurant in West Springfield. He was newly married with a one-year-old son. By the time his soon-to-be ex-wife reported him to the Agawam tip line, they were split up and fighting over custody. She moved out of the area with her son, and Gary went on to spend the next 17 years working as a shuttle car driver for Enterprise at Bradley International Airport in nearby Connecticut. His friends describe him as docile and the nicest guy in the world. He had no criminal record, and no one who knew him thought he was capable of the brutality seen in Lisa's murder, except his ex-wife. She knew something was wrong. She remembered seeing cuts on his hands around that same time and she hated looking at the little music box Gary had bought for her in the gift shop where Lisa worked. He told her he bought it before the murder. He described the woman who sold it to him as a little old lady, but no one fitting that description had ever worked there. In 2002, detectives noticed Gary's name again as they were combing through their list of possible suspects they compiled after the murder in 1992. This time, he agreed to come in and talk to them, but when they asked him for a DNA sample, he said no, and you won't believe his reason why not. He refused because he was afraid his DNA would be used to clone him. (laughs) Okay. But with no other evidence linking him to the murder, they had to let him go. Six more years went by before Gary's name came up again in 2008. They noticed his name was still on the ever shrinking list of possible suspects from all the way back in 1992. So they gave him another call. He immediately refused to give his DNA, but he did agree to come in for another conversation. Detectives figured they'd be able to get something off of his courtesy bottle of water, but Gary never touched it. In fact, he didn't touch anything. He just denied everything. And in the end, they had to let him go. Without a miracle, Lisa's case seemed hopelessly cold. Then a miracle happened in the form of a new district attorney and a breakthrough in DNA technology. In 2016, a DA named Anthony Galluni took office. He grew up haunted by Lisa's case and he was determined to find her killer. At the same time, a new technology called DNA phenotyping promised to reveal a potential suspect's appearance based on DNA evidence found at the crime scene. Finally, the stranger who took Lisa's life had a face. The phenotype revealed a Caucasian man with dark hair and dark eyes, but no one recognized him. With fresh eyes and this new composite picture in hand, two new investigators combed through the files of suspects again. They were able to clear some of the names who didn't fit the profile, and they looked deeper into the others. When they were done, they were left with only 11 names. These were men who fit the look of the phenotype and had refused to give a DNA sample. One of those guys was Gary. In September 2017, they knocked on his door armed with a grand jury order. He wouldn't be able to refuse a DNA sample now. He wasn't home, but he wasn't very far away. The very next day, his girlfriend showed up at the police station holding three letters from Gary. One was a confession he wrote to her. Another was his will. And the third, shortest letter, was an apology to Lisa's family. Here's an excerpt from his two-page confession as published on MassLive.com. I've been dreading the day I need to write this letter for almost as long as I can remember. First off, I love you. I hope you never doubt that. Now the hard part you're going to find out some awful things about me today. They will tell you I abducted and murdered a young woman approximately 25 years ago. It is true. All of it. I had no intention of killing her when I grabbed her, but events spun out of my control, and in the eyes of the law, it is all the same. I have never regretted anything so much. I was young and headstrong and foolish. Emphasis on the last part. I've never really been or even felt normal. From a very young age, I was fascinated by abduction and bondage. I could never keep it too far from my mind for long. On that fateful day, I let myself do something terrible. I always knew it would one day catch up with me, and now it has. I received a text message from my roommate last night that the state police were at the house with some important papers for me. That will be a warrant to take DNA, and that will send me away for life. I'm still trying to decide, even as I write this note, if I have the courage for that, or if I will take the coward's way out. Either way, I apologize again so much. I also never did anything of the like again. I hated what happened. I despised myself. I thought of turning myself in hundreds of times over the years. But I truly am a coward. Today, it will end. I will take my own life or face the music, as it were. Lisa was murdered to fulfill one of his sick fantasies. Gary did not kill himself like he threatened. He took a handful of Motrin, drove himself to the hospital and checked himself into the emergency room. While he was there, investigators got a search warrant for his apartment, where they found a toothbrush they pulled DNA from. It was a match. His apology letter to her family was only four sentences. He apologized for killing their daughter and sibling. It ended with this. I hope knowing who and knowing I am gone will bring you some closure and peace. I am so truly sorry. Gary's DNA was submitted to the FBI's combined DNA index system, or CODIS, as you probably know it. And for years, it was routinely checked against other unsolved crimes. But so far, there haven't been any hits. As hard as it is to believe, Lisa may very well have been his only victim. But how or why he picked her he's never said. On September 25th, 2019, he pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison. And that's your recap. Thank you so much for spending some time here today. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, it would mean the world to us if you would take a second to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. Thanks so much in advance. Until next time, take care.